very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Bo Olette, as it is a Tuesday at the time of this recording. That's right. Awesome, dude. Good to be here with you. Yes, preemptively anticipating my questions. And we're also glad that you are all here as well. If you'd like to send us your questions, we'll go through that briefly, and we'll also be displaying them at the bottom of the screen if you're joining us live as you listen on the broadcast today. If you're listening to us live on Reach Radio, you are not, in fact, listening to us live. That will be a day delayed. But note, you can still get your questions to us through the following venues. First of all, you can email us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That email address is good not just for questions off air, but also if we're starting to get to the end of the broadcast, you want your questions stored and put away for safekeeping in future broadcasts, that is the best place to put it. Questions, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. And note the questions are plural. So if you have that as basically our contact, you'll be able to send us those questions whenever the opportunity arises. And our next opportunity will be to answer them, of course. If you'd like to join us live, first of all, you can join us on YouTube at A Reason for Hope. A Reason, the number four, Hope, is, of course, the page. And if you follow us there, give a like and hit the notification bell, you'll be informed when we are going live in your respective time zone. For us, it's 4 to 5 p.m. Arizona time. We don't go off Mountain Standard because they would adjust to daylight savings. And who needs that in the desert? So that will be how you can send your questions to us there as well. We'll have a chat room on the side of the screen as we're broadcasting. And then, of course, if you're listening to this at a later date, the comment section is open for your questions as well. The same is true for our Facebook page, which is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or Facebook slash CCF Tucson, T-U-C-S-O-N, for those of you who aren't in the greater Tucson area. It's very specific spelling if you aren't Hispanic. So that said, you can join us there, give us a like, and you'll be notified when you're going live as well. If you'd like to join us apart from social media, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y christianfellowship.com. We'll be happy to join you, or rather host you, as you join us there. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to where you can send us questions just like you would on YouTube. Type in your own name. Perhaps if you want to be anonymous, you can include that too. But we'll be happy to answer your questions through those venues. Our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, YouTube at A Reason for Hope, Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and then, of course, on our email address for receiving your questions, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now, before we get into asking, answering, and anything in betweening of those questions, uh, would you like to take a moment to pray for us? Before yeah, we... and I do want to give a special shout-out, too, to my friends in New Mexico at the 10th Hour Project. Um, they are, this is an awesome ministry. It's an eight-week discipleship program. Um, it, you can go to uh, agentsforchrist.org forward slash 10th hour um, and about 10th hour, I think it is, or, or you can just look up 10th hour project. But um, this is for young adults to go seek the Lord, learn about the Bible, learn about worldviews, learn about apologetics, and also go on missions. Um, it is headed up by Pastor David Chaffee and his wife, Deanna. Um, and I just got a chance to spend four days of teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, with uh, these young adults, and it was absolutely awesome. So just wanted to give a shout-out to them, 10th Hour Project. You can look it up online, check them out, 
And, uh, you know, if you're a young adult and you're not doing anything in the world and you're kind of thinking, man, I really want to grow in my walk with the Lord, this is definitely a, uh, I would say, a hardcore um, time of studying and uh, mission work. And note to parents, if you think, well, my kid doesn't care about the things of the Lord, so if I send it to them, will they fix them? No. no. The purpose <laughs> is to enable people who want to follow the Lord. That's right. Yeah, this is for those that definitely uh, have a hunger and a thirst to, um, you know, for the Lord and His Word and see how God's going to use them. So anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you're doing uh, in so many people's lives. Uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to serve you and we thank you uh, that we get this opportunity to be on the show today. We pray a special blessing uh, on those that are listening, uh, wherever they're at. And uh, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom uh, in your word. Father, help us to uphold that wonderful uh, grace and truth and keep those in balance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right. Well, going out to our questions as they are being sent along. <laughs> We have, first of all, uh, from our email address, questions for hope, questions that we've been meaning to get to for a moment, and the only reason I'm dragging this out is because it's loading. There we go. Uh, Dwayne wants to know if it's a sin to want criminals imprisoned or even executed without giving them a second chance. Mm. Now, I've been partaking of conversations that were less than civil. People say Christians can't avoid the or can't support the death penalty. Christians shouldn't be pro-prison. Christians shouldn't be even pro-police. Uh, when it comes to the mindset that Christians should always want a second chance, does that mean that there are no legal consequences yeah. in the horizontal? Yeah, I would say if you just read through the the Bible in its entirety, um, beginning to end. Uh, accountability is a big one, um, uh, an, an accountability with God, and there's also an accountability with a, a society as well. Um, and so you'll see uh, capital punishment uh, in the time of Moses, the law, Israel, uh, and you'll see this theme run all the way through the scriptures into the New Testament as well in the book of Romans. It's probably the big passage, uh, Romans chapter, I want to say 13, if that's it, Sean, um, mm -hmm. that speaks of uh, uh, the government uh, um, uh, being able to punish uh, evildoers. And they do not uh, have the sword in vain, it says, meaning they God has put these people, uh, put governments in power, and uh, there's a specific reason for that. And so throughout the whole Bible, you see a sweep of uh, capital punishment. Um, I like your question, though, because it says, like, I, you know, is it a sin to want, you know, to have that kind of want? And I think of other passages, too. Um, I was thinking of one in the book of Ezekiel. I, pretty sure it's chapter 18. You might want to look that up. But in Ezekiel, it says, you know, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And and that's something um, that we have to also kind of have in balance, I think, in our heart, uh, is that am I delighting in people's judgment? Uh, am I kind of of that mindset of like, man, I just want to see people you know, I just can't wait to see them judged and die or, you know, this kind of thing. 
Um, we have to be careful about that, um, that kind of attitude. We understand that God uh, has put a government in uh, there, and there is a purpose for the government. One of them is to uh, uphold righteousness in a land, and the Bible does say uh, and talk about uh, that righteousness exalts a nation. And so we have to understand that, that God has, you know, given a means to which righteousness can be upheld in a society, and it should be. Um, And we should delight in that. We should delight in that uh, righteousness that is being upheld by uh, a court system or by the government or those kind of things. Um, But we also want to have a heart, uh, uh, I would say personally, uh, a soft heart to pray for people's salvation, um, no matter what uh, they've done. Um, because in a, in a real sense, we've all broken the law of God, every single one of us, and we all uh, deserve uh, hell. We all deserve separation from the deity. And so this is what Jesus has come to do, is to reconcile us to the Father through his atonement and by giving us, giving us his righteous life. Proof of that is his, in his resurrection and ascension. And so um, I, hope, I hope that helps, Dwayne. you got to have a balance there. Um, so to want it in the sense of like, man, I want that person to die, I would, <laughs> I would say let's balance that out with... Um, some compassion um, on people, but also knowing that uh, when righteousness is exalted in a nation, true righteousness, that's a good thing. And we have to understand that that is a grace too, that righteousness is being upheld. Yeah, and it's definitely a privilege in Western culture to imagine a world where we don't see evil at its peak, at least not as frequently as they did in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So the mindset that assumes, well, we should always want people to have a second chance, and then executing them prevents that. Well, first of all, you look at the last words of the majority of some of the most notorious murders in history, most of them came to a saving relationship with Christ on death row. Mm. So the question is, what second chance are we making available to them or praying for them? That they can go on and continue in a life of reform and then go to hell later, or that they could ultimately be reconciled to God? So, Mike, the or uh, Dwayne, the concern, I think, is where's the second chance? Assuming the atheist worldview where this world is all there is and therefore the second chances are also where this is or that we want them reconciled to God and that can include in a prison system where they start to see the immediate horizontal consequences and as both said Romans 13 lays out the purpose of government is to punish evildoers it is to uphold what is right or in a right relationship with God does it mean that they always do those things no but they'll answer to God for how they used or abused their authority, just like we ought to answer to him and to our fellow man for that authority as well, and that's the purpose of government. There is an evil that needs to be restrained by force, and living in a world where we don't see it as 
blatantly as we ought to. It, again, does us a disservice intellectually, but not the Bible morally. Let us know if that helps. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I would, I would just say, um, or let me just give you the, the passage I was quoting, Proverbs 14, 34, is the one where righteousness exalts a nation, right? And, and sin is a reproach to any people. Yeah, as a disgrace, disgrace. And the Proverbs also talk a lot about justice. So if you just read the Proverbs to you'll you'll get that idea that um, court systems need to be just. They need to uphold righteousness. Um, you know, and, and so we, we are thankful for a nation that does that. Yep. All right. A uh, question on our website from Noth, who wants to know about a woman they saw on Instagram celebrating the solstice, new age, and the feminine Wicca goddess Sophia. And she seems really happy. Now, isn't Christianity the same way? Aren't we all looking for the same thing? Okay, Bo, is the purpose of Christianity to feel happy? No. Okay, so we're not achieving the same thing, if that's what this woman's trying to model. Is the purpose of the Bible to tell us how to be happy? Um, not necessarily. Okay, so if we look to our sacred scriptures, for Wiccans it would be the Book of Shadows or some equivalent, for Christians it would be the Bible. Wiccans, apparently, uh, according to the Wiccan read, say, do what ye will, but do ye no harm. Well, that's not even necessarily a pursuit of happiness, more a mitigation of cruelty, but doesn't really specify what that means either, so good luck. But for Christians, it's not even necessarily a legal system. The purpose of either religion doesn't necessarily mean to be happy as far as what might be the result of those pursuits if your relationship with the god or god as you know him or some other spiritual influence sophia literally means wisdom in greek so the idea of the goddess of wisdom they would i guess embody that in some way but when people are pursuing god they aren't necessarily looking for an emotional reaction they're looking for answers to important questions and in the case of this woman, I don't know her personally, we haven't got a name here, but the idea, and my experience with a lot of Wiccans, is asking the question, okay, what is my purpose? And if it's to do what ye will, then that can include feeling good. That's what we call hedonism, basing pleasure and pain as the standard of right and wrong. So their feelings aren't even necessarily, uh, are necessarily their God, not Sophia. But here's the point. What is Christianity telling us we ought to be looking for? I think that's the more important question, because you ask one Wiccan what one means as far as their pursuit of the supernatural. Some don't regard it at all. Others say it's just a hobby. Others say it's some sort of, uh, I guess, enlightenment or Eastern pursuit. Some say it's just, you know, what we do with our family and free time. And a lot of people look at religion that way. But when it comes to Christianity's, as you said earlier, claims regarding Jesus rising from the dead, the answer isn't for us to be happy. It's for us to understand what? That there is a God, that he cares about us, and that he demonstrated it in history. Now, regardless of whether I feel happy or not, that will remain true. So if that's in fact the case, what is the Bible telling us that we're looking for? What's yeah. the purpose of our religion? Yeah, the purpose of Christianity is actually salvation. Um, and this is the purpose of the entire scriptures. Um, you know, when Paul was uh, at um, in Greece, and the, the writer of most of the New Testament is a guy named Paul, who was a Roman citizen, but he was ethnically 
Hebrew. And he was a very uh, well-educated, we would say, university uh, kind of uh, professor-like guy. Um, and uh, when he was when he was in on his missions, if you will, to the area uh, of Greece, and he got a chance to speak at what's called the Areopagus, this place where people would be heard their their in a sense philosophies. Um, Paul said something pretty radical, and that was, he said, for he has set a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. See, the reason why I say salvation is what Christians are looking for is because the Bible teaches that we're all going to be accountable before a holy and righteous God, and that there is a problem, and that is there's, uh, we are sinners. Um, and you might not like that, and you might go, no, nah, but that's, that's kind of the proof of, the, of the, it being true, because when you say, no, I don't like that, the Bible affirms that that's the problem with us, is that kind of reaction, because it is a reaction in pride. I don't want to be wrong. I certainly don't want to be accountable to God. And growing up, me, a very secular, progressive guy in Southern California, uh, you know, with a dad who was super into Marxism and stuff like that, um, uh, you know, you know, the last thing you want is accountability with the deity. You got to actually toss out the de deity, and then you become, in a sense, your own deity to make up what is right and what is wrong. And whenever you are faced with that kind of ultimate objective accountability with a God who's uh, 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 outside of you that's demanding any kind of righteousness, man, you just toss that aside. And so, you know, um, it's neat how Paul tells those in Greece exactly what the problem is, is that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. You know, what we need is— uh, what. The Bible saying is, you need righteousness before the deity. And so that's the big thing. It, it's a message that's not very, are going to make you very happy. <laughs> you know, it's like when I read the Bible uh, for the first time all the way through, it's not like you read it and you go, wow, man, I'm super happy. It, it's not like it's uh, like picking up a book on Bhagwash Rajneesh or Sai Baba or something like that that's kind of like, oh, I got some tids of wisdom and, you know, I feel good and I'm just going to burn my incense and read some of this and boy, I feel like that chi, that peace. It's not like that. You read the Bible and you kind of go, whoa, like, man, something like I see, it's a re, it's a revealer. It's like God's MRI machine. It's it's showing you all your pride, and all the issues that's going on in your life. The insecurities, the fears, the discontentments, the lustfulness. The, I mean, man, the pride of life, and uh, it speaks to such a truth of the human condition that it's incredibly. You have to be, I think, really naive to deny its its truthfulness on just how much we are in need of this salvation, this right standing with God. Yeah. So when we look at other religions, we don't necessarily condemn them on principle and say that they're either being deceptive or that they are even intentionally misguiding other people. 
they have a goal and a pursuit in life that's ultimately to fill in the blank, right? The Bible tells us that we're aware, or rather we're not aware of our real problem, and that is that we will stand before a righteous God. We've all fallen short of that glory. So either we can fix it the way he's provided for us through belief in his son, or not. And how people approach that is going to vary in any way, I suppose, from the sublime to the bizarre. But whether it's in alchemy, rituals, whether it's in culture and history, Gerald Gardner, the first Wiccan, quote-unquote, claimed he got it from the Druids who were exterminated by Julius Caesar. Not sure where he got the writing materials. It's all ultimately based on two things, revelation or speculation. God speaks down to us or we think about him. Right. And I have yeah. a lot more confidence, and Bo, I'd assume you'd agree, that we would have more reason, the word faith, more reason to trust that what God would speak to us, the infinite speaking to the finite, accomplishes a lot more than the finite reaching into the infinite. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's what the Bible is, uh, that's what it says about itself, that it is the revelation of the deity. This is what Jesus, his whole, if you will, statements were about, is like, I've come to reveal the Father. Right. Um, I, you know, have you ever doubted God? Have you ever said, is there really a God? How, you know, this is why Jesus came. Um, the, what's the whole point of the incarnation is it is answering that those questions of, is there a God? What is God like? Um, how do we have uh, a relationship with God? Um, this is what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus should be your hero. <laughs> because he's the one who's actually said he comes from the Father, and he's going back to the Father, and he's come to earth on a rescue mission. Which is almost ironic in a way, especially from a Wiccan perspective, because in their mind, what's their framework for what God would be like? They look at something beautiful, like a woman, like nature, like pleasure and feelings. They would upgrade that to the infinitesimal degree, call it Sophia, and say, that's what I'm dedicating my life to, the things that I enjoy and celebrate. On the other hand, what did God do for us? He reduced himself to a man, his creation. Yeah. So it's an inverse of the mindset. So are we looking for the same thing? Categorically, no. We have a completely different understanding of not only what God is, but how God speaks. That God would speak to men, or men would speculate about God. Are we all seeking the same thing in happiness? Even in Wicca? No. That's merely a side product, and not always the case, especially when truth comes hitting you like a freight train at times. Conviction <laughs> isn't always fun. Yeah. And then, of course, practically, no. Once again, there are things that Wiccans can do, and that Christians can do, that make them happy. But even Wiccans will acknowledge, you know, life's still tough, and they have to do the nine to five just like anyone else does. Mm -hmm. Their ritualistic experiences may help alleviate some of the stress, but it's no more an answer to it than a Christian saying, you know, I want to trust Jesus right now, but I think I need to go on these narcotics to numb the pain. We are offering a real-time solution, and it's entirely absent from our emotions. That's why they need the gospel just as much as anyone else would. Not out of respect in reading their books, which, I mean, the Book of Shadows in particular by Gerald Gardner, it's just a manual on child molesting at the end of the day. But people who write their own revelations of God, they better be right. 
because as one of your heroes, Blaise Pascal, once said, eternity is a long bargain. You don't want to gamble with odds that will ultimately cost you an infinitesimal amount when you seek to gain an infinitesimal amount. Yeah. So, note that point, Keith, or um, Noth, thank you for the question. Yeah, great question. Very good question. You guys are jamming out there. You guys got all kinds of good questions today. We'll take them while we have them. Um, question from G, who wants to know what happens to animals and plants when they die, and why is the Bible silent on this? Now, that's that's new. People ask, yeah. you know, where, where are my pets when yeah. I die? Because we've formed a relationship with them. We're relational creatures, so we just kind of can't help that. But plants, when they die, like there's a, a consciousness for plants that ultimately they go into some sort of uh, after plant life. I don't know, the, the greenhouse in the sky or something. And I'm not uh, belittling your comment, but we'll, we'll uh, try and make this as positive as we can. The idea of animals and plants, and you kind of answered your own question, why is the Bible silent on this, is because we're not told. When it comes to the Bible's discussion, it's not a book on everything ever. In fact, it's not even a book. It's 66 books, but with one goal in mind, to talk about God and man, not plants and life and animals and death and the afterlife and all those other things. And notice I said it's not there to talk about the afterlife. It mentions there is one, but as far as the world religions and documents are concerned, you want to know about hell, you can go to Aztec mythology and Islam. They go into more details about Sai Baba and Jinnah than any other religion imaginable. Just most lurid descriptions and you know stuff that would make a horror junkie blush, right? But the incentive, of course, is also vice versa. You want to know about the afterlife. Well, Persian mythology, the Greeks to a point, especially with Elysium, and all the other religions that would speculate, take like we were talking about with Wicca, the things they enjoy in this life and upgrade them to an infinitesimal degree, some more coarse and perverse than others. But when we're talking about the Bible, we're not given a lot of details about the afterlife. We know that there is one, but all that we're really told is that you can sum it up in two terms. It's either with Jesus or without Jesus. He's the focus. So if we shame the Bible for having a goal in mind, first of all, that seems kind of silly because every book is going to have a goal. And any communication, every conversation that doesn't discuss every possible thing ever is not a wasted one. So if God had to choose what to talk about with us, why did he focus so much on his son? because that's the actual big deal here. As far as what we do know about plants and animals, we know that God has regard for his creation. We know that God doesn't waste his creation. He knows that this, of course, is something that he's grieved to see in the state that it is now. But the best passage I think that we could give to you for further inquiry is the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, mentions that all of creation groans and travails with birth pangs, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. So in describing our redemption, it's also describing a redemption for them as well. Now, creation doesn't just include human beings, it includes the animals, it includes the plants, it includes the stars, the rocks, fill in the blank. Now, we aren't 
pantheists. We don't believe that there's this all godness into everything in creation. Yeah. That's what that means. We believe that rocks and plants and <laughs> and so on and so forth don't have a consciousness to speak of, that there is a difference between an object and a creature. But we do also recognize that it is all part of creation, so we give as much regard to nature as we would to our fellow man and animals. Uh, we can go to the Proverbs, for instance, on that. But the point, I think, to emphasize is if God has a work and a purpose to redeem creation— then the fact they'll be with him as well, because they came from him, is sufficient. As far as, you know, what's the plant afterlife looking like? Is it uh, fields of fertilizer? As far <laughs> as the eye can see with varying degrees of sunlight that are just perfectly tailored to you, you can write all the fan fiction you want. But when it comes to God's revelation of us, the purpose of the Bible wasn't to tell us everything ever, not even necessarily about heaven. It's to tell us that we will be with him. And that's enough. So noting that that will apply also to anything else, I think answers the question. Any more to add? I would add just uh, Genesis chapter 1. I would look at verse 27. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And uh, remembering that there's something unique about uh, human beings this is something that uh, the philosopher that debated C.S. Lewis, gosh, uh, years and years and years and years ago, um, uh, Anthony Flew, um, really, it really uh, kind of blew his mind, this idea of consciousness, this idea uh, that uh, we have the ability to not just go off of instincts like an animal, but we have the ability to think about, um, to override our instincts with thought and reason and, um, you know, intellect. And uh, so this is what really moved Anthony Flew to, uh, um, you know, write that last book called There Is a God. And uh, so you might want to read that book. And it's a very interesting read. He debated C.S. Lewis um, and uh, his, yeah, he wrote a very famous paper um, called the theology and falsification, which was kind of the atheist uh, kind of book uh, against um, uh, Christianity or any theology for that matter. And um, so it's interesting to see a guy like Anthony Flew understand there's something really unique about human beings, and this really uh, just uh, grabbed his mind and started thinking through this, you know, um, and uh, anyway, he comes to some conclusions in that book, There is a God. Um, I also want to, uh, you know, you think about plants and animals, and you think, okay, you know, their redemption is actually predicated in the Bible on humans, humans being redeemed. So in Romans chapter 8, when it talks about that the... Um, it talks about this redemption that's going to take place of everything... It says that, uh, that we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redeeming of our bodies. Um, and this is in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And that was, I just read, um, verse 23. But if we backed up to verse 22, it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the, chains, uh, or in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. That's the passage, the redemption of our bodies. And, uh, and so it's interesting that uh, everything's predicated on humans being redeemed. The whole world is waiting for this redemption. The idea is the whole creation, plants, animals, they're all waiting for us humans to kind of get right, <laughs> if you will. And it's through us getting right with our Creator that there is, a, in a sense, an open door to the restoring and uh, refreshing um, uh, restoration, if you will, of everything else. But it's all predicated on human beings being redeemed. So you just don't see animals like uh, Jesus took a body. There's a reason he took a human body. Uh, he became one of us, one of our brethren, uh, to redeem what? Human beings. So he took a human body to redeem human beings. So uh, I know of no animal that that uh, did that, or I know of no plant <laughs> that, uh, that did that, you know. We kind of chuckle, but yeah, we, we, we just see in the Bible there's a redeeming that needs to happen of this, uh, these image bearers of God. And we have lost that image-bearing work, and this is what Jesus has come to do. And that's why when you read in the New Testament, like in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, it talks about this, that we're made now in the new image. Uh, we're kind of restored back to a rightful image of God through Christ. We get to, in a sense, uh, be what we always were supposed to be. And isn't that a truth that... in that we all know, no matter where you're at in your life, whether you're Christian or not, don't you know that something's wrong with us? <laughs> like as human beings, we need to be restored to some kind of rightful place. This is what the, Jesus has come to do. Again, redeem human beings. That's why he took on a human body, and that's why the ascension is so important, because Jesus took a human body, not only put it on to redeem human beings, but also he carries that body with him today in the presence of the Father. Um, and so uh, he's always, in a sense, now part of the human uh, world, if you will. Um, our, what, what the book of Hebrews calls, he's our, uh, not ashamed to call us brethren, right? Family, you know, he's part of the kinship now of humans. Again, God reaching down. This is the idea. Uh, loving us so much that he would humble himself and reach down. So, yeah, you just don't see that uh, that kind of narrative with plants or animals. So, <laughs> sorry if you have a green thumb and you want to see your plants in heaven, but I don't think they care. There's going to be something greater. I mean, that's for sure. You'll be with Jesus. Uh, Russ wants to know about uh, having heard it taught that some Christians will miss the rapture based on the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Is that true? Mm. Well, already you're already answering the question because parable, an illustrative story meant to drive home a very specific point. So if we go to Matthew 25 and ask what was the punchline, the conversation obviously was with the end times, there's no fault in that. But when we're looking at the wise and foolish virgins, it notes in the first verse, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to. 
and then it goes on to note accompaniment at a wedding. Now, when people say this is illustrating a time when people are going to be of the same quote-unquote Christian category, read into the text, not necessarily in it, and of course there will be categories of them who are prepared for it and those who aren't prepared for it, reading into the text, referencing the rapture specifically, not mentioned, then they say, well, there'll be some Christians that get left behind because they're living a sinful lifestyle or something, and then they'll jump on their pet sin and say, if you're not uh, free from this area of sin, then you need to repent or you're going to miss the rapture, try to scare you into the kingdom. But here's the problem. Let's go to the punchline and ask, what was Jesus trying to drive home with this? We'll read the this and then ask if it's appropriate to read those kind of concepts into it. Matthew 25 and verse 13 says, watch therefore. So what's the therefore in referencing? Watch, for you do not know neither the day or hour in which the Lord is coming. That's what he intends you to take away from this, not to say repent, not to say be perfect, it's to watch, be aware, for what reason? Unanticipatable. That's the point of emphasis he meant to drive home. So let's read the parable real quick. It says, now, uh, this is likened to ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. The wise took oil in their vessels, but the wise uh, took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, if we're going to be reading themes into it, what's the significance of sleep? What's the significance of the oil? We aren't told in light of what Jesus explains it ultimately to be driving home about. He isn't talking about the oil being a picture of salvation, though some try to argue that. He's not arguing about physical death or a state of sin in reference to sleep, which you could read into it. What is being talked about? They're sleeping. Characters in the story. Let's stick with that. It says in verse 6, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming out to meet him. Then all those virgins, who, note this, arose and trimmed their lamps, the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, lest there not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to those who sell, buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So what do we see here in light of the punchline? We see people who were prepared and those who weren't. Now, both were sleeping. The cry came out at midnight. Both were aware of the event at the exact same time. But one category, five of them technically, we'll get the numbers straight here, said what? Give us some of your oil. We're not ready. Now, does that mean that we read into this? Okay, so that means that they weren't saved at this point. They were just among Christian groups. You could, but is that in the text? No. The punchline of the parable is, watch therefore for you don't know the hour your Lord is coming. Is it a reference to the stores and saying, well, I got to get right with Jesus first, and it, when the rapture takes place, it'll be the twinkling of an eye, so I can't get right at the last second. I need to be prepared. Is that accurate? Yes. But is that the point of the parable? No. It's always pointing back to the punchline. Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. So it goes on to note, when they said in verse 11, afterward the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Now this is where groups 
I think with the best of intentions, will go crazy. They'll say, see, this is literally referencing the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where people will say outwardly that they were Christians, but not inwardly. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, this is talking about the apostate Christian and the legitimate Christian, all shown to be different at the time of the rapture. But here's the point. Where's that mentioned in the text? What's being referenced here? It concludes with, watch therefore. We do not know the hour your Lord is coming. What brought this up? Matthew 24 and 25 are a conjoined conversation. The apostles were asking, how, what will be the uh, end of these things? And of course, the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus goes on to explain to them, it's not going to be yet. He gives a literal outline, very broad strokes granted, but he drives home the point that as far as referencing them, he gives literal references again and again and again. Verse 36 of Matthew 24, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but the Father only. When he goes on to give examples of Noah, it's noting, get in the ark. (laughs) It's noting the preparedness that God has provided for you, not necessarily getting all these archetypes and themes going. He's saying, you're not going to know when I'm coming, so be ready. Because the apostles, they thought the hour had come, right? They believed that this was all going to happen at once. But what was Jesus' point? Be ready, for you don't know the time I'm coming. That was why he told that story. How do I conclude that? Because that's verse 13. (laughs) That's literally what he told us to take away from the parable. So our precaution, and again, we stand before the Lord, and Jesus said, says to you know me specifically, well, look at verse 12. Can't you tell I was making a reference to someone who was outwardly a Christian but not inwardly? I'll say, I stuck to the text, man. I, I think I can have a clean conscience on that as opposed to I taught something that wasn't actually there. Now, check your conclusions, but also make sure that the plain meaning of the text is what's taking priority, and I think you'll be fine. When it comes to the significance of this, again, makes people nervous. They've heard it taught. Lots of Bible references. They hear from their pastors, and there's points of disagreement. We would emphasize less information rather than more, because what's less is actually what's there. But when they hear that their pastor either A, isn't infallible, or they're perhaps teaching something from the pulpit that may not be as solid as they think, what's the solution? Check it out. Hear other opinions. Because when it comes down to it, the main things of Scripture are the plain things of Scripture, and the plain things of Scripture are always the main things of Scripture. There isn't controversy, unless you're in a cult group, about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. There isn't controversy, unless you're in a cult group, that has the issue of whether or not the Bible's our authority on God's Word. But when we come to the Bible and want to say, well, what's the significance of this and what's the significance of that? Either it has been explained or it's about to be. If neither is true, then just take what's being presented to you, because that'll either come into play later, or it might not be what you think it is at the face at face value. That's what I would say. Anything else you'd want to note or correct? I would say just like a kind of a uh, in studying the Bible, sometimes uh, if there's like a parable, if it's not directly quoted in the epistles of Paul. Um, then it it might be a good thing to not, you know, extrapolate uh, a lot of 
uh, you know, ideas on it. Meaning sometimes we can get a little carried away, as Sean's saying. Um, you know, if the epistles hone in on something and give some clarification or, um, you know, we see, uh, you know, them talk about it, then, you know, I could see us, you know, going, hey, this is what this means, and this is what that means, and that kind of thing. But when you don't have that, then we have to kind of, you know, be careful um, and just kind of tread lightly. Uh, you know, Paul, in the book of First and Second Thess- Thessalonians, Paul spent three weeks with those in Thessalonica, just working with that church in three weeks on, he talked a lot about the, the, the last days, and, you know, I was trying to think, Sean, in the writings of, uh, to the Thessalonians that Paul did, was there any kind of reference to um, some will be, you know, that there's going to be a group that will be raptured, and there's going to be a group that won't be raptured. And, and then there's a clear teaching, uh, if there was a clear teaching of, well, they're both Christian groups, it's just one is kind of slacking. The super Christian. Yeah, one's more super Christian than the other. You know, but if I saw something like that in the book of First or Second Thessalonians or elsewhere in the New Testament, then I might kind of look at that parable maybe and go, oh, yeah, I could, I could see that, you know, but we just don't have that. Yeah. Uh, so that's why uh, Sean is saying, hey, you know, less is, is probably where we want to go. Uh, I would imagine if you looked on YouTube, I mean, I just got to imagine that there's like so many clips of this parable and the other ones, by the way, the parable of the talents and the sheep and the goats. Mm -hmm. I would imagine there's just so much on those parables and they're all kind of all over the place, right? It's just, you know, and it all, at one point you go, oh man, that fits and that fits. And then this one doesn't fit. And so it's like, it's kind of the, you know, it's hard. it, It doesn't all fit. You know, so therefore you're kind of like, oh, that doesn't really fit. And so, you know, but you got to just go to the punchline. You're right. You know, with these parables, you got to just look at the big thing um, and uh, and and kind of walk away from it and going, yeah, you know, be ready. Abide in the Lord. (laughs) So let us know if that helps you out, Russ. Uh, Here's a question from Robbie, who uh, is attending public university Old Testament courses. He's taking the I guess, a frontline battle for us. But he's uh, coming up with a lot of interesting objections to Christianity in a class that's supposed to be teaching it. And uh, says, or he got asked, uh, does Mark 14, 12 and John 19, 14 contradict regarding when Jesus was crucified? So let me read the passages. It notes in John 19, 14 that it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he, that is Pilate, said to the Jews, behold your king. Now, if we go to the Gospel of Mark, and this would, of course, be a parallel account, it notes before this event that in verse 12, it was the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover lamb, and his disciples said to him, what did they do to you, Jesus? No, they said, where do you want us to prepare the meat, the Passover? So this is before his trial with Pilate, the first day of the feast, and apparently... John 19 would say that it was the first day of Passover, or the first day of the dedication feast. So what's happening here? Was the first day of Passover in at the time that Jesus was standing trial, or was it the first day 
of the, of the Passover feast when Jesus was celebrating it with his disciples? And the answer isn't in John 19 or in Mark 14. It's actually, you're going to probably hear this a lot, in Leviticus. <laughs> Because in Leviticus chapter 23, there's an overview of how these festivals were to be celebrated. And in that description of the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in particular, it was not a one-day feast, it was a seven-day feast. Yeah, I think eight, if you kind of... uh, Yeah, anyway, go on. Yeah, you you get to the passage that mentions that specific day. Mm -hmm. Now, during the Feast of Passover, there was a a sacrifice, a feast on the first day and on the last day, and of course, many recreational activities in between. So if we're noting this very broad strokes period of time, why does John specify it was the dedication day? And again, let me read the passage so that we're not uh, glossing over major details here. It was the preparation day of the Passover. He specifies that. Now, does that mean that Passover has begun, that it has ended, that it is currently going on? No, it notes a preparation day. Now, how would a first century Hebrew understand that? There's some theories, but it's not the first day. You have to note they're trying to, and this is what 99% of the contradiction claims are, demanding an interpretation of one thing in a very narrow sense but also requiring a very loose interpretation in another sense of the point they're trying to challenge it with. So if we go then down to Mark chapter 14 and ask what's specifically being noted on the first day of unleavened bread, well, that could mean a lot of things. You know, it's, it's just the Passover, you know, it's, it's kind of started the first day. Well, that, no, the first day, right? That has to be the first day. No, 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 it's just saying Passover started not really getting specific. Then you go to John 19, and what do they say? This has to be the first day. Mm. This has to be that dedication day and sacrifice, not the full week that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was supposed to encompass. So when you're having a conversation about this contradiction, note that it covers a longer period of time in the Old Testament, but also call them out on that inconsistency. Why is it that the first day is specified in Mark? when they enjoyed the first Passover feast and offered the sacrifice of the lamb, Last Supper, and then Jesus was arrested and so forth, but then demand absolute narrow, no room for wiggle room when John isn't even that specific in noting it was the time of the dedication feast. That's a week-long process. So there is, in fact, a broader strokes in the John passage. That would be my response, but most people who bring this up won't give you more than 12 seconds if that. So note first, I think, in these conversations, check for sincerity and ask, okay, if I could explain this to you, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? That's usually the first bet. But if they say, no, I'm just doing this to troll you, they won't say that, obviously. Then, of course, I wouldn't waste your time with it. But that would be to ease your own mind on the issue. John isn't as specific as they make it out to be. Mark is specific while they're requiring it to be handled loosely. Very, Mm. very sketchy. Yeah, I kind of like my NIV note here. It says, uh, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Ordinarily, this would mean the 15th of Nisan, Mm -hmm. um, the day after Passover. Uh, See note on verse 1. However, the added phrase, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, 
makes it clear that the 14th of Nisan is meant because Passover lambs were killed on that day, Exodus 12, 6. Uh, the entire eight-day celebration was sometimes referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is a uh, a long feast, and there is evidence that the 14th of Nisan may have been loosely referred to as the first day of unleavened bread. So that's a good note. Um, there's definitely some some good research to be done there, but um, yeah, I, I mean to say that to say that that would be your um, linchpin to dismantle Christianity would be, um, I would say, uh, kind of a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> Little, yeah. uh, little over dramatic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. You know. All right. Well, let us know if that helps you out, Robbie. Uh, whether it stops the professor from going on to their next point or not, I will doubt with great certainty. But as far as our reason for the hope that is within us, let's just make sure that we're reading more than what's handed to us. Sometimes more than one passage can help. Here's a question from Adam who wants to know, in what ways did the Pharisees add to the law of Moses, and which passages point to these additions? Well, if you're looking for specific passages that admit from the Pharisees that they're corrupting their own text by violating what Deuteronomy told them, do not add to, do not take away from what is written, or God will add to you the plagues and take away from you the name, your name from the book of life, also referenced in Revelation, we need to be, I guess, careful in what's being asked of here. So taking the question apart piecemeal, in what ways? So we're already assuming they did. Yeah, I kind of thought two passages. Yeah. Um, I thought one of them was um, the healing Jesus did on the Sabbath in Matthew 12, 12. And then I was thinking of Mark chapter 2, verse 24, where Jesus was plucking the grain, where there, those are examples where you see the Pharisees... Um, saying that he was doing something wrong and Jesus had to correct them. Yeah, they were holding as traditions of men on the same authority as God, but the rabbis didn't claim that. They were simply upholding these traditions as commentaries, and this is what's important. When you're talking to non-Messianic, non-Christian Hebrews, they don't view what's called the Talmud, the um, Mishnah, the you know commentaries Gemara. and all those other things yeah. as instructions, but more as debates and conversations by respected religious leaders. So when, for instance, you're reading about the opinion of Rabbi so-and-so, and then he's responded to with the other opinion of Rabbi so-and-so, it's going to depend on whether or not they see merit in those words, whereas... Tanakh, Torah, the the Old Testament as we call it, is in fact the final statement. Those would be just commentaries. What Jesus would correct them on and what those passages in the Gospels are, are them mishandling commentaries and confusing them with Torah. And Jesus even holds them to it by saying, which of you convicts me of sin in the Gospel of John? Now, that would be their chance to start quoting Tanakh, and, or to quote uh, um, Talmud and Gemara and all the others, but they recognize that's not the authority on sin. Those are opinions. But if we take another step to this side and go, where exactly did they, get, did they go wrong? They were treating men as their spiritual authorities, whereas when the God-man was speaking, they didn't regard him as a spiritual authority, which wasn't the sin, it was inconsistent. Mm. They regarded wise men, 
But then they saw the wisest of all men, wisdom personified, and said what? Well, we don't respect your view because you're not upholding our other traditions. It was inconsistency on their part, not altering of text. Now, there are instances where, of course, in the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah, there were people who refused to hear what God had to say. There were records of false prophets trying to put these things forward, and Scripture records what they were saying and then debunks it. But what's ultimately the issue here? The issue isn't that they are corrupting the Bible. It's that they're treating something other than the Bible as if it is. So note that as a careful difference. They didn't add to the law of Moses. They treated something that wasn't Moses as if it was. That's the, that's the key there. Yeah, sounds good. I was thinking, too, in Acts 15.10, it says that, um, that there's the Great Jerusalem Council that's taking place in that book. And Acts is a history of, really, the Church and Acts of the Holy Spirit moving through people in the early Church. And, but it talks about the yoke of bondage uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, the relig- Jewish religious people put on uh, the society. Um, just all, everything that was in the Mishnah, the Gemara, which became the Talmud, um, very heavy stuff. So, All right. Well, we are about to start hearing the music, so we'll cap it off there. But yeah, don't worry, good we've show, got man. your Bible questions wow, ready great. in archive for tomorrow, where Pastor Scott will hopefully be joining us. He'll yep. be returning from an adventure I'm sure you'll be hearing all about. But until then, both thank you for joining us. Thank yeah. you all for joining us, and we'll see you all again next time. Note that if you want to send your Bible questions to us, once again, email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. We'll see you all again tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.